Okay, good morning everybody. Welcome back. It's great to have you here this morning. Uh, this, uh, this seminar is Clear Christianity and uh, I'm just going to recap a bit of uh, what we spoke about yesterday. Uh, we're, we're looking at a period in church history known as the Reformation and that, uh, that time was, just, just so you can get a, get a bit of a bearing on it, this is just, just for your information, this is a reduced diagram. This is, this is not exactly covering every base. But you've got circa 30 AD here, Jesus Christ, life, death, resurrection, 2017 on the other end. The Reformation happens right, actually, nearer to, nearer to our time. 500 years ago, the Reformation begins with a man named Martin Luther, who I spoke a little bit about yesterday. I gave a real sketch of his life. And um, we're lucky enough to have Andrew Wilson coming to speak to us here this morning uh, and giving us a lot more detail on, on what, uh, what Martin Luther did and who he was. And, yeah, just to point out that this is the split in the church that brings about Protestantism as well. So all of us here today, we're, we're, we're at a Protestant uh, church conference, just in case you were unaware of that. This is, uh, this is the kind of stream that we flow in. That's not to say that Catholic believers aren't brothers and sisters in Christ. Many, many are, and uh, that we, we hold a lot in common. There's doctrinal differences which will become apparent, and Andrew's going to bring some of those to the fore. So we're, we're looking at this through the lens of what are known as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola meaning alone, meaning only in Latin. And these are just a way of understanding the truth that were reclaimed in the Reformation. And um, I've given the English names here, but we're going to kind of switch between the English and Latin names so that you get a bit of bonus Latin learning. I know, I know that a lot of you are here for that. Um, so we've got at the top here, to the glory of God alone, that salvation or Christianity is to be to the glory of God alone, Christ alone, that salvation is in Christ alone, that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, and from, from Scripture alone we get our authority and these things will become apparent. You'll build up a picture over the course of these few days. Uh, we're going to be looking at specific characters who were responsible for Reformation progress and Reformation history. And you're going to learn pieces from that which are very relevant to today. I think that's another question that we need to answer is, like, what is the relevance of each of these things for today? Because we live in such a changed circumstance, 500 years on, the, the issues that we face are different, but the principles and the truths that we're going to be speaking about as these five solas are applicable today, and we'll be workshopping and thinking about how we can apply these truths in our lives and in the mission that we have from Christ. So, oh yeah, just one thing to mention here. Some of, just, some of you uh, will have been around yesterday when I mentioned this book, Rooted, which is written by my friend Edward Rhodes, who lectures on the internship down in Brighton. And uh, he's, he has this forthcoming book, which is looking at church history for young adults. So it goes through the entire sweep of church history, uh, making it relevant to today, basically taking every era of church history and doing what we're doing here this week. And so it's very worthwhile. These, these little excerpt chapters are to do with the Reformation, and I've got another batch of them here because all of them uh, flew off the shelves yesterday. So you're very welcome to avail yourself of one of those at the end, free of charge our gift to you. All right, so today we're speaking about the sola, sola gratia, sola gratia, by grace alone, and, um, and the gift of God. And uh, I've, I've entitled the, the session God's Gift, and now I'm going to introduce Andrew Wilson, 
Um, and I'm going to resist saying anything else about that. So, Andrew, uh, would, you, would you like to come and join us? <laughs> Big round of applause for him. Thank you. Yeah, I hadn't spotted that. Like, God, God's gift. I like that. That's never been said about me before, so thank you. Um, can I just do a little, you know, clapometer? Or you have to clap if you agree with a statement or not. It just helped me to get some context of where you guys all are on some of this. Um, could you do a little clapometer if you are or have been at some point in your life from a, a Roman Catholic background? Okay. How many, thank you. Um, how many of you would... You're from a Protestant background, and you would use the word Protestant to describe yourself, or you, or you have. You would know, that, you know what that is, and you would use that to describe yourself. Okay? And how many people are from a Protestant background, but you would never use that word and don't really entirely know what it is? Thank you. Okay? Uh, how many people here have read or studied the Reformation in some context before? They've either, I, so when I did, was at school, I studied it as part of my history course. Um, probably that's not common, but it might have happened to some. How many people here have studied the Reformation before, or you've read a bit about it, and you know who the major players are? Okay. And how many people here know so little about the Reformation that they didn't know Martin Luther and Martin Luther King were different people? Okay, that's great. So just to clarify, this, isn't, this is a German monk we're talking about, and, and university professor in Germany in the 16th century, and he didn't make a speech about, I have a dream. And just, it's important that you clarify. So obviously the guy who did was named after this guy we're going to be looking at today, Martin Luther, but a totally different person. And I thought it was helpful just to get some sense of where you guys are, because otherwise, uh, yeah, I don't want to be teaching grand to suck eggs, but I don't want to be um, missing out some of the important things that, that you need to know either. Okay, so what we're going to try and do, I'm gonna, we'll have lots of stopping and discussing and that sort of thing. Have you all introduced yourself to the person next to you? Because that, In fact, let's do that now. If you don't already know them, turn and say hi so you know who they are and they know who you are so when you talk together in a moment, it won't be weird. Really, tell the story of Martin Luther through the lens of um, the emphasis that he and what he said and did brought on the, idea, the Christian doctrine of grace into the church. Now, the church has always believed in grace. If you go back to Paul, you'll see Paul is obsessed with grace. He's always talking about it. You read the Bible from beginning to end. It's always about grace. So the idea that grace is an, something that popped up in the course of uh, the Reformation is completely crazy. This is something that Christians have always believed. So grace or gratia, just the fancy Latin word, because I think Tim wants to make it look like he's been doing some work. Um, I'm going to take this off. So the thing that the Reformation brings to the table is not the belief in grace. It's not like the church was not believing in grace and then suddenly in 1517 we did. The thing that's distinctive in a way about the Reformation is the word alone, not the word grace. Now grace is Christianity. You, can't, you read the... My theology of grace has probably been as much shaped by a Roman Catholic. I suppose he would be a Catholic writer called Augustine, who some of you may have come across. More than anybody else, he would be one of the most influential thinkers on grace. So when, this is not something that Protestants have and other people don't have. What's kind of distinctive about Protestantism, though, and certainly the Reformation, was the word alone. And we're going to look at the idea of what it means to say that salvation is by grace alone through the story of Martin Luther. And to do that, we need to go back to the Middle Ages um, and late, late medieval Catholicism. So you just get, feel like you're getting your money's worth. We're just going to put some, uh, some string together, some words together like that, and show you some maps, just because I like maps. And uh, so this is a map which is obviously very, very small, but what, and you can't see the key, which is immensely unhelpful. Um, but were you to be able to see the key, and I don't even see, do we have a clicker, on, a, a pointer? Oh, no, I love pointers. Anyway, top left-hand corner, you can see the key. And um, 
What it says is that... You do have a pointer. That's what I did. Oh, I did it wrong. There we go. I patronized Tim, and now I've been patronized back, and I probably deserved it. Um, so... The key here, which you all knew was there anyway, so it's a meaningless piece of pointy-pointy. But anyway, the box in the top left-hand corner is a key to the map. And what it says in red, this is a picture of Europe divided along which pope they supported in the late 14th century. And I don't know if you knew this, but in, in late medieval Europe, there were three popes at one point, And it was probably the most difficult period for the Roman Catholic Church. And so Roman Catholic friends of mine would say, yeah, that's the period of our story that we have the hardest time explaining in a way that doesn't make us look silly. Because they were, the countries in red said, we think that, has anybody been to Avignon? And has anybody seen that there's a massive, well, you must have seen it if you've been to Avignon, the Palais des Papes, like the enormous building that dominates the city, the car park is under it, and you walk out into it. The Papal Palace, for a lot of the red, the red countries, the Pope was in Avignon, which is down here in southern France. And so all these countries thought, we think the real Pope is in Avignon. Then you have the blue countries, which said, we think the real Pope is based in Rome. And then we have the countries in the Holy Roman Empire who said, actually, we're, we're kind of divided on that question. And at one point, they didn't just have two Popes. But in order to try and figure out who the real Pope was, they had a council and ended up concluding that it was actually neither of them but a third guy. And that third guy, as we said here, you know, this, uh, it was based in Pisa. And so the church was in a bit of a mess. And the institutional church in the late 14th, so 13, so 70s, 80s, 90s into the 1400s was a bit of a mess in terms of its government. And that's important background for what Martin Luther is going to do 100 years later. And I want to tell you, there's a really cool story actually about a prophecy about Martin Luther, which I, I think is true and I hope is true, but it might not be. But I'm going to tell it anyway because I'm, uh, there's a, a good source at the time said it was true. So... When they have the council to try and sort out this mess and figure out how, what they're going to do about the Pope, I'm, not, I'm still losing my, my red thing. They have a council around here um, in a place called Constance, and they, uh, they hold a church council to figure out what they're going to do about the three popes thing and end up concluding who the new pope should be. But one of the things that they do, and this is one of the worst things that the organized church ever does, is there's this guy who's teaching things that sound a little bit like some things that Protestants later said. And his name was Jan Hus. He was a Czech. He was a Bohemian guy, actually. So if you ever heard the word Bohemian? Jan Hus was like one of the original Bohemians. And so he comes to, this, comes to this council to explain himself. And they've promised him that if he comes, they will keep him safe. And they won't kill him. And he will be allowed to explain his ideas in a way that means he's safe from being burned alive in a horrible way. Which is, in the end, they break their word. And they burn him anyway. Um, because they say that you're a heretic and we're going to kill you. And while they're doing that, he ends up making, giving this prophecy. And he says, today, you are, you, are burnt, you are cooking a goose. And the word hus, his surname, means goose in Czech. And he says, you're cooking a goose, but in a hundred years' time, a swan will arise and you will not be able to silence him. And Martin Luther's family crest a hundred years later. So he's, he comes up a hundred years later and his family crest is that of a swan. And I think it's a pretty cool prophecy. I like the idea of if you're going to bring a prophecy, you might as well do it while being burned alive. I just feel like that's just about the best setting for a prophetic gift. And obviously, it's not something that the church particularly was into at the time. Um, and then, of course, that's, that is basically what happened, that this new figure rises up. And, and to be honest, there's not that, that much difference about Martin Luther to a lot of other people. Initially, he's saying the church is corrupt, the church got some things wrong. But as he does, 
it takes on a bit of a life of its own and he becomes a major celebrity and it ends up turning Europe upside down. So if you were to look at a map of Europe today, it does not look at all like that. And, in the, Ho- and the Holy Roman Empire here is broken up into hundreds and hundreds of pieces, whereas now it's one big nation. And that, really, that process began, and the Europe you know today began with the Reformation. And uh, so we're going to see a little bit about how that all happened and what it's got to do with grace. Now these, you can't read these. Can you, if you can read them, can you clap? So right, so back to about five, six rows. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to bring you a couple of quotes. What happened in the same period that this is going on, we have some, the popes make a couple of pronouncements. They're called papal bulls, which means statements that the pope makes that have kind of binding authority on Roman Catholics, which is, at the time, remember, is everyone in Europe. So you don't, Europe is entirely Catholic at this point, or all of Western Europe is anyway. So there is no such thing as a chunk of Europe where people go, oh, actually, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, or I'm a, I'm a Protestant. There are a few Jews, there are a few Muslims, and everybody else is Catholic. And so when the, Roman, when the Pope says something, everybody has to go with it. And these are some things that the Pope said. The one on the left, this is a papal bull, Oh dear, spoil the ending. The one on the left here, this is a papal bull that basically says that what God has done is he's provided a means of the church being able to give out sort of tokens of grace to the church in order that they might be able to, um, effectively when Jesus died what he did was he, he secured this massive treasury of merits. He, had, he was so good and his blood was so powerful, as we heard last night, that he actually saved up loads and loads of merit that could be given out to sinners. And then a hundred odd years later, what we find is that not only is the person who's in charge of that treasury of merit the Pope, but that it's something that will be given out in response to and in line with the members of the church doing things called indulgences, which might well include giving money. Now, that would, I don't think the intention of the church was ever to say you can buy grace. I don't think that's ever what people meant to say. But the effect on the ground of these two papal bulls and some of the teaching that went with it was that by the time the 15th century is coming to a close, late 15th century, you have a whole load of people in Europe who are thinking in normal life like there is a connection between giving money and receiving grace. And that's what's beginning to happen. And so you have a guy who's a particularly bad example of this, um, a, a, a Dominican preacher called John Tetzel, who is going around beginning to preach that if you contribute financially to the offering the Pope is taking to fix and restore and renovate the building. Who's been to Rome? You, oh, quite a, Wow. A lot of people have been to Rome. So St. Peter's Basilica, the massive church in the Vatican, huge thing. You've probably seen pictures of it. Um, and in fact, we saw a picture of it last night. So if you were in the thing last night, you would have seen it. It's an absolutely splendid building. And they, they were trying to build that. And, the, and what was happening was there were people traveling around saying, if you give money towards the building of that building, you will receive a certificate from the Pope, effectively, that says that people you love who have died will be able to shorten their sentence in purgatory after they die. And that's a pretty bad thing to start teaching, but it had begun to take root because Roman Catholic theology was making space for that kind of thing. And it shouldn't have been. And actually a lot of Catholics were saying it shouldn't have been either. And one of the Catholics who said this mustn't happen was this German monk, Martin Luther, who in the end kind of accidentally starts the Reformation. So, well, he did. He wasn't trying to. He didn't say, I will begin a Reformation. He said... 
this is wrong, somebody should say so, and as they did, it spiraled out of control and ended up dividing Europe. Now, any, this is a little map, uh, can, again, clap if you can see it. By the way, you guys at the back, a lot of space has been made from some people who I think realize that this might not have been the seminar for them, which is wonderful, but that means you can come forward. So you can probably see a lot more if you want to. There's quite a bit of space here, and you may be able to see it here. Um, Roman Catholic theology, um, at the time, and actually in many ways to this day, contains an understanding of grace that is relevant to the backdrop of what Luther said. So this is a if you've got Catholic friends or if you come from a Catholic background, you will almost certainly know the phrase, the state of grace. You'll know what it means. It's not something that probably you would ever hear preached in a setting like New Day, unless we were talking about this. So you've probably never heard anybody say in your church, it's about entering into a state of grace. That, you might have, but that would be rare in our kind of church. Whereas in Roman Catholic theology, it's a big deal. So what they had, I've just realized that the pointer is less effective than standing here, like a weather forecaster and pointing at it. So... Um, what they have is you see, you are born in sin, right, which I believe as well, but you're born in sin, then they would say you, get, you are baptized in water as a baby, and as you are, you enter into a state of grace, which is wonderful. So you're now in a place where you can receive and respond to the grace of God. The problem is that then, little cycle begins, you sin. And what do you do if you sin? Well, you confess your sin to a priest, and then the priest will give you something called penance, which is a... A, an action or series of actions that you will do not to earn forgiveness but to demonstrate that you are truly repentant and actually that's not an awful idea and I might do the same thing to my children I want you to to demonstrate that you understand why you're saying sorry you might need to go and do this so it's not evil uh, but they, you sin you confess to a priest you do penance and then as a result you enter back into the state of grace which is great and that happens throughout your life and then when you die you may need to go and be purged of remaining. In fact, almost all of us will, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, need to go and be purged of the sins which have not yet been effectively covered in this life um, because many of us have done a lot of bad things. Uh, and you should you go to purgatory, which was unpleasant and might last many thousands of years. And so you can see why if someone's saying you can buy your grandmother out of it because she was an old battle axe and although she was a Christian, she wasn't really that nice you might say, oh, do you know what? I might buy that if you believe that was the way theology worked. And then at the end of that, you get out of purgatory and go to heaven. That would be a snapshot of Roman Catholic theology of grace at this period. And that opens two doors into a misunderstanding of grace, I think, which the Protestant Reformation eventually pushed against and caused a lot of change, at least obviously in our context. And one of the things that it did was, as I said, this doctrine of being able to both believing in purgatory and believing that something that you do now, including buying something, might be able to get people you love out of it quicker, that will make a huge difference. And so you had this guy, one of his slogans, I think it's amazing that it rhymed in German as well. I can't say it in German without reading it. But in English, what he, his slogan was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Isn't that a great slogan? It's Terrible theology, by the way. Do not, do not say that. Do not, if, if anybody in your church on Sunday just says, you're now just going to pass around the offering buckets, as soon as the coin, and everybody's worship, here I am too, and as I put my coin in the, then the soul of my grandmother goes out of purgatory. Or Actually, often it wouldn't even be a grandmother. Remember, a lot, most people in Europe would have had children who died in infancy. Right? That's rare 
by the grace of God now. Very, very common then. So you go, what am I going to do about my child? So you can see the emotional pull of that kind of idea. And that's one of the cracks in the system that opens up. And it's one of, that is the main thing that makes Martin Luther angry when he starts saying, we have a problem. And then the other thing, that, the other crack that opens up, which is re- represented by this little bubble here, which you probably can't read, but Martin Luther was also brought up in a school of thought that taught that the way that, you appro- the way that you receive grace, what happens is, you know, you can't earn your way to God, right? So you're down here, God's up here, you can't earn your way to God. But what can happen is that when you do your best, God sees you doing your best and then gives you what's called an infusion of grace. He, puts, he gives you some grace in response to the fact that you're doing your best. And as a result, you are then able to do things that satisfy God's justice and to approach God. Now, can you see how that doctrine involves grace, right? It, it, it believes in grace. It says you can't get to God without grace. But the way they're describing grace, what they mean by it in this kind of school, is completely different from what I trust you and I believe about the grace of God, which is that it isn't based on me doing my best. It actually comes to me when I'm dead in my sins. I haven't done anything good. And God comes and gives me grace anyway. Do I hear an amen? I didn't, but I'm sure it was in your heart. I could see it in your faces. So the reason why this is significant is because you can talk about grace till the cows come home, but if you don't think that it's only grace that's at work, and you think that grace in that sense is a response to things that you might do that might merit in some way or cause God to give you grace rather than that you are dead and God makes you alive, then you may very quickly end up with a whole system that is founded on, that has too high a place for works and too low a place for the grace of God, even if you're talking about grace as you are. Okay? Now there's a lot of content there. And what I want you to do is talk to the person next to you and say, is, have, what, have I learned anything in the last... 15 minutes. And it's fine if the answer is no, but what I will then ask you to do is to ask a clarifying question because I don't want to miss people. So if you want to ask a question in a moment, we want to do that. This is the backdrop to Martin Luther. So turn to the person next to you and say, what have I learned in the last 15 minutes? Okay. Are there any clarifying questions at this point? I know there's a lot we haven't covered, but is there anybody who's saying, you said this and I just, I don't understand it, or I'd like to ask something about it? Where does the belief in purgatory come from? That's a good question. Um, it's not, the word itself isn't used until the 12th century. But the, the idea, a Roman, you see, it depends who you are. So for me, I'd say, because I'm a Protestant and I don't believe in it, I'd say I think it comes from a, a mixture of a desire for us to be able to do something, um, which is inevitable, and probably an, an the, the, a confusion in Roman Catholic thinking about the relationship between baptism, sin, and particularly infants. And I think that's part of it. But a Roman Catholic would say it comes from 1 Corinthians 3. So they would say in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 15, Paul talks about the fact that you, if, you are building, if you build well, you'll receive a reward. He's talking to preachers of the gospel and ministers and apostles. He says if you build well, you'll receive a reward. If you don't, if you build badly... You'll get saved, but only as if through the fire. Now, I think he's using a turn of phrase that the Jews used, and I think he means, like we might say, escaping by the skin of his teeth. But what people read into that reasonably early in the church's history was, this is actually like a fiery place of purification you go through. So they would say that's where it comes from. There was another question somewhere. 
Yeah, we'll take yours and then yours. Great. Yes. Can I help you understand why the church believed there was power in indulgences? The best way I could do that is actually to point to these two papal bulls because they explain the theology actually quite, kind of quite well. And uh, I did a conference on this, which we did this on a lot more length about a month ago. And as we, it was really funny. I read this papal bull through and explained the logic. And the next morning in the worship time, one of the guys, one of the pastors in the room, who's at the delegate at the conference, has been a Christian 40 years or something, reads out the first paragraph of this papal bull in worship. And everybody's amening it because it's true. And what happens is as you watch it develop, you sort of think, Jesus died and there's so much power in his blood that he's able to avail for all of us, even if we've done things that are wrong and there's credit. And, and as it moves on, you gradually see, oh, wait a minute, we've moved away from what you're originally saying. But it's um, obviously the guy stopped praying about here. But it was quite interesting because it doesn't start off, if you read this, you won't think, oh gosh, that's all, that's all terrible. You see, gradually... You'd think, well, obviously, where if Jesus has died with more than enough credit for my life, where did the rest of it go? And and then you ask, and who's in who's in charge of dispensing it? And well, obviously, the guy who's the head of the church on earth. And how is he going to do it? And on what basis? And you very quickly end up. I mean, I say very quickly. There's still 130 years between these two documents, but you can see within that context if you have one head of the church and you believe he's a an apostle, a successor of Peter, you can kind of see how it happened. But that's probably the best thing to do is actually to read these two documents. And then you had a question too, didn't you? Oh, sorry, no, they do. Sorry, do Catholics believe in hell? No, they definitely do. Um, and in fact, they, their depictions of hell in art and in literature, if you've ever come across Dante's Inferno or anything, are often much more vivid than ours. So they definitely do. Um, this is assuming a believer who has been baptized as an infant. So this is talking about the framework for Christians and which, of course, for them is Europe. So they, they don't, you know, there are a few Jews and Muslims, but everybody else. So that's as they see it. And I will take your question as well as a Brucey bonus. Yeah. Okay. Can you become a Catholic later on in life? The answer is yes, you could convert. Um, and depending on who you were... Uh, if you've heard of the Spanish Inquisition, that's effectively a process by which in, at, in this period of history, in Spain in particular, they were very sceptical of people who were claiming to have converted. And so they set up, and it's not a nice phase in the church's history, they set up a process for trying to interrogate whether people were genuinely Christians or whether they were pretending to be Christians to get out of persecution or something, which is not nice. And I don't think we should have a New Day Inquisition or anything like that. But that reflects, yes, you could. But you might, depending on who you were and when you had converted, be under suspicion. But in reality, that, that hypothetical doesn't often come up in Europe in this period because pretty much everybody is a, is a Catholic. Okay? Um, no, these are really these are good questions, Tim. Yeah, we should come again. This is good. Um, okay, so the, <laughs> Martin Luther's been tilted on his side. So this is now where Martin Luther, the Martin Luther story comes in. And this is what we're mainly talking about, but I wanted to set the backdrop so that you understand why when he talks about grace and why when you and I talk about grace, we are saying it into that kind of context. Now, this is a map, which I know it doesn't look like it, but this is a map of what is now Germany, but back then there was no Germany. There was a language, German, but Germany as a country didn't really develop until the late 19th century, 150 odd years ago. Um, And at the time, it's made up of dozens and dozens of little 
principalities and protectorates and all kinds of gubbins with the overall heading of the Holy Roman Empire. But there are hundreds of different people in charge, local princes and you know, bishops and lords and all that kind of stuff, right? Oh. Um, oops. So this is a map of Germany, and in it, what I've tried to do is to trace the chronology of Martin Luther's, like what he did and said, briefly-ish, so that you can see what the main events are. So Martin Luther is a German monk. His dad is a minor, and he's born in 1483, and he is uh, is on his way home one night, and a lightning storm comes, and in our day we go, wow, lightning, hmm. And obviously, you know, there must be a lot of electricity in the atmosphere. In their day, lightning nearly hits you, and you're spared. You think this is an act of God, right? Because that's just the way you would respond. And so Martin Luther is narrowly missed by the lightning and ends up saying, save me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And St. Anne is the patron saint of minors, and he, I think, thinks this is, what, this is God speaking to me. Now, you and I probably don't tend to do that when we see a thunderstorm in the same way, but in their day they would. And he says, I'm going to become a monk. He's, he's basically converted, not in the sense of becoming a Christian, but in the sense of saying, I need to give up this life and instead become and train to be a monk. So he does, and he goes off to Erfurt, which is nearby. It's just highlighted out on the map, though you can't see it. Um, and he, in, in the end, he also becomes a professor of Hebrew at a university in Wittenberg, which is the town, if you've heard of Luther, you may know that's where he comes from. And to this day, on a map of Germany, it's still called, I think, Wittenberg am Luther, because it's so, or like Lutherstadt, perhaps, it's, it's so associated with him that he's actually added his name to the town, which is not a very big place. Um, so that, that's where he is in 1505. He becomes a monk and then he ends up becoming a, a professor of Hebrew. So he, he's like a mixture of a pastor and an academic in the days when you could easily do both of those things. Then we have the appearance nearby of this slightly sc- scoundrel guy, John Tetzel, who I mentioned before, who's going around telling villagers um, that if you give money towards the offering for the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, then you can effectively buy an indulgence to get someone you love out of purgatory. And here it is in, in, in German, at least the version I've seen, Sober der Pfennig im Kasten klingt die Seller aus dem Fegfeuer springt, which I'm sure if you are German, you can say much better than that. But that's the gist. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's the idea, the slogan. And Martin Luther hears it and he's angry because he says, you are in doing this, you're communicating that people can somehow buy the grace of God, which is wrong, it's evil, it's wicked, you mustn't say this. And what he does in response is he says, I want to start a debate about this, and so I am going to list a a whole bunch of things I would like to see debated, I'm going to write them all down, and then I'm going to put them in the place where academic debates get kicked off in my community. It just so happens that in his day, the way you would do that is you would write down theses and you would bang them to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, which is what he does. So if you ever heard of Martin Luther nailing theses to a door, that's what it was. He was saying, these are a series of things that I just want to see us debate. Because these days you might write a tweet or you might blog on it. But in his day, you didn't have those media, of course. So he said, this, this is the way you start a discussion. And I'm not even sure Luther necessarily believed 100% sure of all the things he said. But I think he said, I want us to discuss these things. He was pretty ticked off. And so if you read through the 95 Theses, and a lot of them are actually quite boring, what you'll find he's really trying to do is say, this practice of indulgent selling is 
really bad and should be stopped. And actually, I think, Luther's saying, even the Pope, if he knew what was happening, would stop it. So Luther's going, this cannot be right. I'm sure the hierarchy, the bigwigs in the church, they don't really think this is what should be taking place, but for some reason they're allowing it to go on. And I just think everyone needs to know this is happening and stop it. And he thinks that's going to, that's all it, all it will be. He thinks he's starting an academic debate. He is wrong. Dum, dum, dum. Why do you think, okay, is there anything that has happened in the last hundred years that might mean that you, 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 this is a nerd question, but you might already know the answer. Is there anything that you can think of that might mean that writing things and pinning them to a door, even though you're only trying to talk to a few academics, might suddenly become a massive phenomenon across Europe with everybody able to read it? Anybody know what happened in the 14... The invention of the printing press, okay? So how many people knew that? Oh, there was a high five over there, excellent. There's nothing quite like a nerd church history 15th century high five. I've partaken of a great many of them myself. Um, And yeah, the invention of the printing press. And what that means is that you can now write, again, you've probably, some of you experienced this online, you write something, Twitter's not a bad example, right? Because it's this kind of platform where you write something and you think only your followers can see it, and then somebody retweets it and it ends up... Who's had that experience? You've been yelled at by people you don't know for something you thought you were just saying to your friends. Who's had that? I had it yesterday, okay? It happens all the time to me. But that phenomenon, in a way, is what happens to Martin Luther, where he says, I'm trying to talk about this to the academic community in the Catholic Church, and instead it has become, within a few months, a a Europe-wide phenomenon. Everybody is talking about it. And it's changed the church ever since. And the main reason why, for the main reason why, we have to move on in the story to understand why did that become a big thing, okay? Um, The next thing that happened chronologically, but I couldn't make the bubbles quite fit, is the Heidelberg Disputation, which we will look at in a moment, where Luther, in the six months between here and here, starts developing his theology in a different direction, and it becomes much more radical and much more like the kind of thing you probably think of when you hear grace alone. Okay, but we will come back to that in a moment. For now, the political story d- continues. He, um, within two years, the Catholic Church have got really upset about it because their argument is, you, you've, poked, you've poked at indulgences, this practice of selling indulgences. We could talk about that. The problem is not kind of what you said about them. The problem is that in saying that, and then the Pope defending it, you have said that you don't think the Pope is right. And if you're saying the Pope is right, you are rejecting the idea that the Pope is the head of the church and in authority. In fact, you're implying that you are, or at least that he isn't. And that gives us a huge problem, and that's the kind of thing that in the last few hundred years we have actually burned a lot of people for saying, so you really need to pipe down and shut up. And there was this thing's kind of come to a head for him in a debate at the University of Leipzig, which is in East Germany, with a guy called John Eck, who makes exactly this case. He says, you... You said you don't believe in indulgences, but the Pope says he does, which means you're challenging the Pope, which means you're a heretic, which means we might, he doesn't quite say this, but maybe we'll have to burn you. Again, in our day, to call someone a heretic is a kind of jokey thing you might say on social media. In their day, that is the most serious charge. It is like, as I made this reference yesterday, it is like calling somebody a pedophile. That's the kind of thing that ruins someone's life if if the charge sticks, And actually, it's worse in many ways because in their days, you would literally burn someone alive for it. So this is a huge deal. 
Luther, at this point, has a choice. He can either say, hmm, yes, you're right, that is heretical, and even though I believe it, I will just go away quietly back to my little monastery and carry on lecturing in Hebrew. Or he can stick to his guns and say, I think this, I'm now seeing there is so much wrongness bound up with this theological system that I'm going to defy all the powers that be in order to make this case, even if it costs me my life. And at that point, you know, because you've heard of Martin Luther, you know he does the second one. But at the time, for him, that's not an easy call, I suspect. What would you do? I say, what, what would you do? Some of us in miniature have this challenge already. Many of us do, really. There's an enormous amount of pressure on you and on me to line up with what people in our world would say or think about an issue. Any number of things. And when that pressure comes, you have a choice, don't you? You can say, this will cost me something and I'll say it anyway. Or I will just go away quietly and act like everything's fine. And, but yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, Luther faces that in a very technical way, in a very hard-hitting way. And it might cost him his life. But actually, the challenge is there for all of us. And that's what he, in the end, he decides to do. He says, I'm going to stick to this. The final showdown happens in 1521. Meantime, he then gets excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Which means the Catholic Church say, we don't think you're a Catholic, we don't think you're a Christian, we are kicking you out of the church. And they write, a, again, another papal bull called Ex Serge Domine, which means rise up, O Lord, and judge your cause. And uh, it, it says, rise up, your, O Lord, and judge the scabby sheep Martin Luther. I just, I, the Pope doesn't tend to write things like that anymore, but I kind of wish he did because it's just nice rhetoric, isn't it? If you think someone's a heretic, you might as well call them a scabby sheep, and that's what happens. He ends up burning the papal bull, effect, which is like, I am cocking a snook at the Pope because I no longer, based on the, the development he's seen in this debate, he's thinking, this is now well beyond the problem of indulgences. You are corrupt. You do believe that people should be able to buy their way into purgatory. You do represent a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel of grace and of the role of faith relative to works. You have got the whole thing wrong. And I think we need to stand up to you, even if that means I might be killed. So he burns the papal bull. They have a street party. They burn canon law as well, which is a big deal. As a result of that, the emperor gets involved. Now, the emperor, the only reason you might have heard of Charles V, I suppose, is his aunt is Catherine of Aragon, who is the first wife of Henry VIII. Okay, that might make a link. So he is a Spanish guy, but he is the emperor of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire and... They've recently discovered America, and so he's effectively the emperor of America because Spain has discovered America because of Columbus and so on. So basically, he's the most powerful man in the world by far, and I don't think, I mean, I wouldn't, I can't think of any world leader who has controlled as much of the world since he died as he did, right? Because he's just, in terms of the wealth of the world, he is uber powerful, and he gets involved because he's saying this is no longer just a church problem, this is a political problem. Because this is going to split the empire and I'm not having it. And he ends up summoning Martin Luther. And I'm afraid it's an absurdly named conference. He says, you need to come to a diet, which means a place where we discuss things and put you on trial, at a place called Worms, which is in Germany. But unfortunately, in English, is spelt Worms. So when you read about it, it's literally called the Diet of Worms, which sounds completely absurd. But it is actually what it was called in 1521. And they say, basically, we're going to kill you. If you don't recant. And he takes a night to think about it and then comes in and makes this speech that you may or may not have heard of, but says, says in effect, I, 
I don't think it is right to go against conscience. I think councils have got it wrong. I think popes have got it wrong. I, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. And if you've heard of Luther at all, that's probably the line you've heard of his. He may not actually have said the last bit, which is a bit of a shame. But if he did, I mean, he should have. It's cooler. Um, but even if he didn't, the sentiment is, I'm not moving. They instantly say, right, you can now be shot on sight with a bow and arrow. Right? Anybody who sees you, like a bounty, can kill you. But he then gets kidnapped by forces working for the guy who's in charge of his particular area of Germany who don't want him to be killed because he's become something of a local celebrity. It's a good story, isn't it? Like, so they can, he's on his way out of the council, and anybody in the empire can now, according to the emperor, can shoot him. But he gets kidnapped on his way out by forces from Frederick the Wise, who's, based, who's Martin Luther's sort of the local prince in charge of his area of Germany, which isn't Germany, but you know what I mean. And, uh, and they kidnap him, and they take him into hiding, and they put him in a castle, in the Wartburg Castle, where he stays for 11 months in hiding. No one even knows he's there apart from a handful of secret people. And that's pretty cool. And so what are you going to do? You're, you're stored up in a castle. on your. You can go and visit it today. It's still there. You hold up in a castle. What are you going to do? I'm going to translate the Bible into German. That's what he does. So he goes, I'm going to work. Because if the people can't read it in German, then they are going to continue believing all this hogwash that I've been fighting all this time. So I'd better translate the Bible so they can read it for themselves and see that it doesn't say what the powers that be are saying it means. That's pretty cool as well. Anyway, as, as his life continues, things really continue, you know, they carry on running away with him. And in the end, he dies, doesn't die until 1546. He and writes a lot of other stuff. A lot of it's good. Some of it's really bad. You may have heard some of the stuff he said about the Jews. We're not going to go into that now. But there's some of it's awful. But a lot of it is powerful. And they end up falling out. Even in the Protestant Reformation, they fall out in the late 1520s. He dies in 1546. And to this day, of course, there are Lutherans all over the place um, who believe pretty much what, exactly what he said. And we all, although none of us are Lutherans, and by the way, Luther probably wouldn't believe any of us were Christians, as it happens, um, which is another issue. Um, but or even, though, even, though we have, even though that's true, we have been massively influenced by what he said. And that just takes probably also a moment to explain. But before that, any, why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, in the last 10 or 15 minutes, this is what I have learned. Okay, and just hearing the Luther story. So we have the Catholic bits, the backdrop, then the Luther story. Turn to the person next to you and say, I've just learned this. Okay, any clarifying questions? We've got a couple of minutes for questions if you have them yet. Silas. Why is the Pope in Rome? As opposed to somewhere else, you mean? Why is he, yeah. Because that's where, because that's, for, according to tradition, that's where Peter was killed and buried. And so Peter was the first, according to a Roman Catholic, Peter was the first bishop of Rome, which means that Peter's successor is also bishop of Rome and so on. So that's, that's why. Pope, Pope just means father. Pope is papa, is the father. So it, that wasn't what he was originally called. He was originally known simply as the bishop of Rome. But eventually Rome became the most important city and therefore the most important bishop and he became the father of the others. Why would Luther not think we were Christians? Um, probably, well, a number of things. Your, your view of baptism would put you beyond the... Probably. Uh, some, of us, some of us might get a pass on baptism, right? If we're Anglicans and conviction, we don't think you get baptized as a believer, but you get baptized as an infant. But I don't, so you wouldn't think I was a Christian. He probably wouldn't think you were um, for that. But actually, even worse, and this would be an obscure debate we can't open up now, 
But when you take the Lord's Supper, you don't think that Jesus is, is physically present in the bread and the wine. You don't think that they are actually his body and blood. You think they represent it in a powerful way. And you think they, you spiritually engage with Christ as you take the Lord's Supper. But you don't think he's physically present. Luther would say, you cannot be a Christian and, and not believe that. That, that would be an absolute deal breaker to him. And that's what this was about, this thing. Um, by the way, at the same time as this is happening, there is another Reformation in Switzerland with a group of people who end up disagreeing with Martin Luther about that. And the Reformation in Switzerland doesn't start with nailing theses into a church door. It starts with the eating of a sausage. Isn't that such a cool way of starting a Reformation? They say, we're not going to fast through Lent of meat. We are going to demonstrate our freedom. We're going to eat a sausage. And they do. And, and it starts the Swiss Reformation, which is also quite cool. Yes, sir. Uh, no, not in this essay. Is it worth talking briefly about Luther on the Jews? It isn't because in order to provide historical context for it, because I don't want to defend it, but I also don't want to just assassinate the guy either. I want to put it in some context, and oh, we don't have time to do that now. So sorry. But I did that at the conference we did. And in fact, Tim is going to mention a conference at the end of this session, which if you're interested in this stuff, you might want to check out because it's a, it's a good year to look at this stuff. Last question for now. Uh, how does Luther die? I think, he just, I think he just dies of illness. I don't think he dies in a particularly... That's weird. I've, actually, I don't know. Like, I know what his last sermon was about. I know where he died. I just don't actually know what he died of. He died in the same place he was born, as it happened. Um, sorry. I'm sure somebody could look that up and Google it or something. Okay. So, just the final thing I'd say is, we've effectively then done a section there on grace and its understandings in the Catholic church in at this period then we've done a section on martin luther and what he said and why and then in this last bit what i want to do is tie the two together and say why it was that martin luther's challenge which was initially about selling indulgences turned into a theology of grace that in the end fundamentally challenged the way that grace was understood in the roman catholic church at the time and became known really as the idea of grace alone how did that happen okay and for this we're going to go back to the heidelberg disputation has anybody been to heidelberg now, that is one of the most beautiful cities I've been to. Rome is even better, actually. But Heidelberg is fantastic in Germany. If you, university city really just, like, I don't know. If, you go, if you're the kind of person who says, I'm going to go on a date and I'm going to go somewhere crazy, Heidelberg's just fantastic. I, anyway, so just throw that out there. Theology nerd dates, but they're different, aren't they? Um, and, uh, so, and the reason why... The reason why that began to develop is, I mentioned, didn't I, that there's a, a progression in Martin Luther's thinking... From 1517 in October, when he posts the 95 Theses, to the Heidelberg Disputation six months later. They, I'm not going to read these, but the, no, these are some of the 95 Theses, and they're the main, in some ways, the main important ones. And they are basically saying, Tetzel is a, this guy who's preaching that you can buy people out of poetry. That's, he's a scoundrel. This is nonsense. And that's his main point. Within six months, he is beginning to say much more radical things about the nature of the grace of God and how, how we should think about the relationship between God's activity and ours in salvation. He is becoming, if you like, in modern terms, he's becoming a Lutheran, which sounds weird, but you know that, that happens. Right? Our, li- our minds change over our lifetimes, don't they? In this document, he's not really Lutheran in the modern sense yet. He hasn't, he's thinking it through. He doesn't like indulgences being sold, but he's not yet there. Whereas here, he's beginning to say things like, The person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him or by doing his best adds sin to sin and becomes doubly guilty. 
That is a very bold statement because what he's taking aim at is the guy who used to teach him, Gabriel Beale, to the one who does what's in him, God won't deny grace. What he's saying is, you remember I used to believe, Luther's saying, I used to believe that you could, you were down here, God was up here, you do your best, God sees you and then gives you some grace. And Luther is now, and Heidelberg is saying, the person who believes he can obtain grace by doing his best adds sin to sin. Why do you think, Luther, what sin do you think he, you are adding if you think that you can obtain grace by doing your best? What sin do you think he's got in mind? I saw you mouth at Katie Ganley. Pride. Yeah? You are now, so let's say you go, I'm a lustful person. I've been sexually immoral. I've slept around. I shouldn't have done it. But I think I can make atonement in... Oh, no, no, that's wrong. I, I think I can access the grace of God to forgive me by doing my best now. Luther's saying, you're now not just guilty of sexual immorality, you're guilty of pride as well. You've become even worse. That's a bold statement. It's true, by the way. I think that's true. I think that's Christianity. I think you cannot obtain grace by doing your best. You are dead when God saves you. As for you, you are dead in your trespasses. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. It is by grace you've been saved. You see, that's, I think that's the Pauline gospel. But for, at the time, that's bold. Right? That's his 16th thesis at the Heidelberg Disputation, for those who are taking notes or whatever. 17th, nor does speaking in this manner give cause for despair, but for arousing the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. And this is how you know that the sin he's got in mind is pride, because what he's saying is, if you know that you cannot do your best and in doing so obtain grace, that doesn't lead you to despair, that leads you to humility. It leads you to say, Lord, I need your grace as an unworthy person. I need you to come to me regardless of what I've done, without respect to my merits. And in doing it, you will make me righteous. But I can't do anything to access or obtain that grace of my own strength. I need you to do it for me. That actually leads to humility, not despair. Number 22, that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. This is fighting talk. He's, he's no longer just talking about indulgences. He's talking about the relationship between grace and works. He's, saying, he's beginning to say things like, this is grace alone. I love this. And that you've probably heard a statement like this and may not know it came from the Heidelberg Disputation, but you may well have heard the idea. The law says, do this, and it's never done. Grace says, believe this and everything is already done. Isn't that amazing? Like, in the context of a world where most people see grace like that, do you see the difference? The law says, you've got to do this, do this, do this, and it's never complete. But grace says, believe this and then it's already done for you. And then finally, this, which is in some ways the best of all, comes at the very end. It's quite more difficult to read, but it's beautiful. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it, right? So if you, some of us are in relationships with other people on site. And the reason you are is because you found something pleasing in them which you attracted to. And Luther's saying that's what human love is like. We find something appealing in someone else and that's where the love comes from. But the love of God isn't like that. Luther's saying the love of God actually creates pleasability, pleasingness, lovability in the person rather than responding to it. So God doesn't love me because he goes, Andrew Wilson is in himself just 
Hugely lovable. I mean, look at him. Look at the way he prances around, talks about the Reformation, jokes about high fives. I love that guy. That's not the way, that's not where the love comes from. The love that God has for me comes from God. It comes from the fact that God loves me and in doing that turns me into the kind of person who is delightful and lovable to him. But you see, the initiative in the love relationship comes from the lover and not from the beloveds. That's massive. So God's love for you isn't based on what you've done. It's based on who God is. And that's at the foundation, probably, I hope, of the way that you regard God as a father. Because if you don't, you end up thinking, well, in that case, I could blow it today. But when you know that the love of God is based in God and his love rather than in your lovedness or your lovability, I should say, then you're completely free from the worry that you're going to do something that's going to screw it up. It's wonderful. And thank you, I did hear an amen that time. That was one, only one, but nevertheless, we're, we're, getting, we're going from naught to one. The trajectory is promising. Um, and then I'm, I'm not going to read this, but this is the section of, the, of his commentary on Galatians that I've got these from. What Luther does as he goes through his life then is he begins to think a lot in terms of pairs or you could say binaries or polarities if you wanted to be more fancy about it, but things in terms of pairs which are like opposites. And he develops this thing. This is very important to Lutheran theology now and to Luther's theology in his own life, that what happens is Luther begins to think, actually, the gospel is full of these opposite pairs, which are alternatives to each other. There is works, salvation by works, and there is salvation by grace. And Luther, I think, would, by later on in life, he would regard the idea that you do your best and then receive grace. He'd say, that's salvation by works, ultimately, he would say. And I think... A defender would say, oh, it's both. But Luther would say, no, but the thing that you have to do is to work rather than to believe. And that's the end. Right? That, that, you, you can't preserve the true gospel if you do that. He then said, law and gospel. That's another pair he, for him. Not quite, I mean, they, he would sometimes talk about it as if they're opposites. Opposite probably isn't the best word, but certainly a binary or an alter, alternative. He says that there is active righteousness, this is what I do, and there is passive righteousness, this is what I receive from Christ's righteousness, which is what we talked about last night with the bin thing, right? There is manners, which in those days is much less to do with, you know, minding your P's and Q's and that sort of thing, but more to do with the way of life. And there is faith, works and grace, politics and religion, interestingly, he develops in the same section. There is the earthly and the heavenly. There is the old man and the new man. There is working in the flesh and blood, and there is working by the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. There is doing, and there is receiving. And Luther develops these ideas. Probably a number of them are quite familiar to you. You probably thought, yeah, well, that's just obvious. And some of them, of course, come straight out of the pages of Paul. You know, you are no longer under law but under grace, those sorts of things. But Luther develops them and systematizes them in a way that not many people had done before, and it's proved very influential over Christians like ours. And so in the end, what we end up with is a salvation that is by grace alone. A salvation that is by the gift of God on its own, without you having done anything to do your best. That the salvation of God has come to you on its own, come sola gratia, by grace alone, not without you having to work, or with you having, without you having to do your best, but on its own, because God loved you, because of who he is, and not because of what you've done. So that, is in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, is what the Reformation when it came to the theme of grace, what the Reformation brought in to the church and has been the same ever since. And then just to finish with this timeline, which Tim introduced at the beginning, we really now have three main branches of the church. And in 1054, you have the, the Catholics and the Orthodox churches split. That's east and west, basically. So the Orthodox in the east, Catholic in the west. 
And then at 1517, you have the split between Protestant and Catholic. And obviously nowadays, Protestants are, come in many shapes and sizes. If I did a poll of this room and I said, what kind of church do you go to at home? There'd be a bunch of people here from New Frontiers churches, but there'd be loads of people who aren't as well. And your practice would vary a lot. Protestants pretty varied, but these are the, still the three main branches of Christianity. And one of the things that a Protestant to this day would say, I'm not moving on this, is that I believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith, and not by works. It's good, isn't it? Do I now, no, I now hear an amen from more than one person. I do. Wonderful. Okay, we've got time for maybe two minutes of questions, and then Tim's going to wrap up. Yes, sir. Okay, what do you do with somebody who says, oh, well, if salvation is by grace alone, I didn't need to do anything. But what you do, the, 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 the really great phrase that the reformers began using is they, I mean, this is just kind of clever play with words, but it's helpful. As they said things like, salvation is by faith alone or by grace alone, but the faith that justifies is not alone. So what they mean by that is, when you get saved, that's simply as a result of trusting in what God has done. But if you have trusted in what God has done, it will bring change in your life. And if you look back at your life 20 years later and it hasn't produced any change, then the faith that you think you had probably isn't real. In the same way that the way you can tell whether an orange tree is an orange tree is whether it produces oranges in the end. Now ultimately, you become an orange tree because of your DNA. But in the end, the way you can tell is because it produces oranges. And if it keeps producing apples, you'd eventually say, I don't think this is an orange tree, despite what I thought back then. And that's the way the reformers would generally think. I think that's also how Paul thinks too. So it doesn't contribute to your entering into the kingdom of God, but it is an inevitable result of having actually entered the kingdom of God. Did the Orthodox have any interaction with the reformers? On this question at the time, no. No that I know of. Obviously, it's difficult to prove a negative, but not that I know of. The Orthodox and the Catholic worlds were pretty isolated from one another in this period. There was very little theological dialogue between even Catholic and Orthodox, let alone Protestants. In the end, of course, it does feed through and becomes an issue of discussion. And today, Lutherans and Orthodox would have a lot of interesting dialogue about things like the relationship between union with Christ and justification. But at the time, that was not really a thing that I know of. Would Catholics say we go to heaven or not? Um, I, <laughs> I think, in theory, I think they shouldn't, but in practice they almost all do, including the Pope, I think. In th- the reason I say in theory they shouldn't is because as a result of all of this, um, if you were to, it might even be on the map actually, way down here, somewhere down here in northern Italy, in Trent, they had a council at the end of this period, in the 1540s and 50s, And they concluded that anybody who preached the gospel that we would preach, that I would preach, actually probably I preached it last night, officially is anathema in the Catholic Church. As in, I am outside of the Church of Christ and accursed. Formally, that's what they think about Protestant doctrine. But in practice, I have, I honestly don't think I've ever met a Catholic who lives as if that's the case. In my experience, I've never met, I'm sure there are some, but I've never met a Roman Catholic who actually believes that what their council officially said about me and many of us is true and should be stuck to. So I think in practice, if you, Pope, if you said Pope Francis, shine a light in your eye, do you think that Andrew Wilson's a Christian? If you'd met me, you know, or do you think this other evangelical Billy Graham is a Christian? I think they'd say yes, even though in formal terms they shouldn't. Brilliant. Can we say thanks to Andrew?